You are listening to Hear Her Sports, a podcast for active, adventurous women who love hearing stories from other active, adventurous women. I am your host, Elizabeth Emery. In every episode, I introduce a female athlete or woman in sport through a conversation about who they are and the terrific work they're doing. In this episode, I talk with professional cyclist and time trialist extraordinaire Haley Simmons. Iris Slappendale of the Cyclist Alliance connected us when I expressed interest in finding out more about their mentorship program. Haley has been a member of TCA since its inception and became involved in the mentoring program in 2018, first as a mentee and then as a mentor. She shares with us her stories about her participation and how and why it is so beneficial to the women's peloton as it grows in strength and professionalism. We also talk about so much more, gravel riding, her iliac surgery, time trials, and the Tour de France femme of Exwift. What really struck me editing this episode is what a great insight into professional women's racing Haley gives us. Thanks in great part to the Cyclist Alliance, women's cycling is changing quickly, so it's fun to hear where things are at now and what kind of work is still needed. I said amazing so many times while talking to Haley, but it is amazing for me to think about how far things have come since I was racing. And a small note that for some reason I now don't remember, many episodes were recorded in September, and this is another of those. While everything we talk about is still relevant, Haley has already raced some of the races she mentioned as being in the future. Well, on to my conversation with Haley. Haley Simmons has been a full-time professional cyclist since completing her PhD in inorganic chemistry at the University of Cambridge in 2016. To date, she has won two elite British time trial titles in 2015 and 2016, and 17 cycling time trial national titles. She also holds three British TT records at 10, 25, and 50 miles, and was the first woman to break the 50-minute barrier for a 25-mile time trial. Internationally, Haley has represented Great Britain at five road cycling world championships and three European championships since 2015. She won a bronze medal for Team England in the time trial at the 2018 Commonwealth Games and another for Team GB in the time trial at the 2019 European Games. She also represented Great Britain at the second eSports World Championships in February 2022 and at the inaugural UCI Gravel World Championship just a couple months ago in fall 2022. In 2017, she achieved eight top tens in UCI-ranked events, including a win on Stage 3 of Lotto Thuringen Ladies Tour in Germany, which ultimately resulted in a third place in GC. Haley has also appeared as co-commentator and studio pundit for several high-level cycling events, including World Championships, European Championships, Ride London, Commonwealth Games, and La Course. Outside of cycling, she loves to cook and bake, is a big cat lover and mother to a black cat named Licorice. Well, welcome, Haley. I'm super excited to talk to you about the mentorship program and the tour and also all of your riding. Yeah, no, it's really nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. So the main reason I wanted to have you on the show is to talk about the Cyclists Alliance mentorship program. But first, you know, you're doing a ton of stuff right now. So we have a ton of stuff to talk about. Let's begin just with an orientation. Like, where are you now geographically? What part of your season are you in? I wouldn't have asked that, but I see that you have a lot of racing coming up. And <laughs> yeah. I think of you as a road rider, so this is unusual. And yeah, let us know what you're up to right now. Yeah, so um, it's been a bit of an odd season for me, to be honest. I've been injured, so um, it's not the kind of injury where it's like, oh, I crashed and broke something. I basically discovered in... April that I had a problem with my iliac artery, which is something that's actually plaguing quite a lot of cyclists at the moment. And there seem to be a lot of female cyclists, you know, reaching out, trying to get testing or potentially having surgery for, for the issue. So I actually had surgery in June and I didn't race between the beginning of March and about two weeks ago basically because of the injury and then because of the surgery and the time off the bike and the rehab. So I actually went out to Spain a few weeks ago because I decided that a kind of low pressure way for me to return to racing would be to try a gravel race. Uh, obviously, it's, gravel racing is big in the States, but it's something that's kind of only really starting to come to, to like Europe and the UK. So I decided that I'd go and do this, this gravel race in Spain, which I actually did with the support of Movistar team because I ride for their Zwift team. 
So went and did that and I came third and it was a qualifier for the World Gravel Championships. So actually next Wednesday, I'll be heading off to Italy to compete in the the Gravel World Championships, which will be my second ever gravel race. (laughs) That's awesome. So yeah, so I uh, got back from Spain on Tuesday. So I'm currently in the UK, been home in the UK two days. And then yeah, next Wednesday, we'll be heading off to Italy for five days. I didn't realize that gravel was new to Europe. Yeah, I mean, so the UCI have picked it up for the first time this year. And I know there's sure. quite a lot of controversy um, because there are events in America that already call themselves things like the Gravel World Championships. And I know that it's a massive scene in America. There definitely has been gravel racing in Europe, but I don't think it's... It, it's definitely not been the same scene as it is in America. But, you know, the UCI have kind of picked it up and and decided that they would take on a lot of existing events and make those part of a a Trek Gravel World Series. And then if you finished in the top 25% of your age category in any of those events, then you would qualify for the World Championships. And if you're a rider who rides for a UCI road team or mountain bike team or cyclocross team, or if you're nominated by your national federation, you actually compete in the elite category at the world championships rather than the kind of age group categories. How did you like the gravel race in Spain? I loved it, honestly. Um, I'm actually, I'm already looking at, at different gravel events that I could maybe do in the future. And, you know, I've read a lot about the gravel scene in the US. So um, that's definitely something I'm also really keen to investigate. How is that going to fit into your other schedule? Um, I don't know at the moment, to be honest. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not 100% sure exactly where, like what my plans are for next year, especially because I've basically, you know, I've not really done any road racing this season because of the injury. I sort of need to sit down and work out exactly what next year holds for me. Um, but, you know, as... Um, as I said, it's been quite a busy few weeks and, and the next two weeks will probably also be very busy. So uh, I'm kind of going to get those two weeks out of the way and then and then maybe sit down and kind of take stock and, and think about it a little bit. I want to talk more about gravel, but first, can we go back to your injury? The You mentioned that a lot of women are having this iliac artery issue. Yeah. Can you explain it more? And, and do you know why? Because I, I agree with you. There have been a lot of women that we've been hearing as we watch cycling that have been out because of that? Yeah, so, I mean, it's also prevalent in the men's peloton. I think it's just at the moment, I'm aware of a lot of female cases. So um, Taylor Wiles, who's obviously a prominent American cyclist, she had surgery the week before I did. Um, And then since I've had surgery, I've spoken to several other women who have either had surgery themselves since or are going for testing in Eindhoven. So I know of at least kind of five other women who were who are currently kind of investigating those issues themselves. Um, So there are some kind of risk factors that make you more likely to develop a problem with your iliac artery. So training history, kind of the number of hours you've spent on the bike. If you have an overactive psoas muscle, um, a hypertrophic psoas muscle, um, there are things like that, that that make you more susceptible potentially. Also for me, a lot of my history is in time trialing, which is obviously a very extreme position. So that very tight hip angle, um, basically, you know, for hours on end of training and racing has was, I guess, for me, what's, what's led to the uh, development of, of the problem. I was lucky because... I know other people who'd had the problem in the past and I reached out to them as soon as I suspected I might have an issue. I think mine was caught relatively early and actually as a result, I was able to have a slightly more minor surgery. So I had a release surgery, uh, which involves cutting the common iliac, external iliac, and also for me, some of the internal iliac artery away from the muscle on the left side. Um which hopefully then means that, you know, now that the scar tissue is all formed and it's kind of healed, my artery should move out of the way when I, you know, bend my leg and and flex my hip for cycling rather than bending like a hose pipe. Because what effectively was happening was my artery was bending, which was restricting blood flow into my left leg. 
which is obviously n- not ideal when you're trying to uh, produce power in uh, in a race. What did it feel like and why did you suspect that you had this issue? Um, so for me, I had loss of power for kind of no particularly, you know, explicable reason and a kind of a, a pain in my left leg, which the pain for me, it was almost quite difficult to describe. I know other people have had, you know, very sharp pains. For me, it almost felt like I was desperately trying to do a max leg press or a max weight rep in the gym and I just couldn't move the weight. And I had, you know, almost like a, a burning, like heavy leg, um, you know, feeling of tightness in the leg. And I just couldn't produce any power. I could, I could maybe get out of the saddle and, and sprint for a couple of seconds and, and get my power up that way. But then I had no sustainable power. Hmm. That's interesting. So, and now you're recovered and you've gotten back to training. Yeah. So I had um, a couple of weeks completely off the bike. And then I had a period of about six weeks where I was just really, really restricted. So I wasn't able to um, or I wasn't allowed to ride over about 110 beats per minute heart rate. So wow. I was, I was, yeah, so I was on the indoor trainer. You know, we, we changed the position on my bike for the indoor trainer so that I could be very, very upright, almost like a shopper bike, because limiting the kind of hip angle and hip flexion was going to be beneficial. So, yeah, I went through a period of about six weeks of, of you know, not being able to do anything strenuous. And then... After that, I was kind of gradually able to reintroduce little bits of higher effort. So going up to 145 heart rate and then a little bit more. And then I got back into kind of completely unrestricted training in the third third or fourth week of August. So, yeah, I've now done about six weeks of, of normal training again. Yeah, so kind of gradually, gradually getting back to things. And it feels good. So far, yeah, I've not done very much on the time trial bike yet, mainly because obviously I entered this gravel event and that became a focus. Um, so I've not done loads on the time trial bike to really test it. But so far, touch wood, everything that I've done seems to feel a lot better. That's great. Well, let's talk about these world championships. You know, what do you know about it? What do you know about the course? What don't you know? And- <laughs> I, f- I feel like I don't know a lot, to be honest. My, my off-road riding in general is, is actually quite limited. Um, so again, related to the, the surgery and, and the kind of injury problem, the, the surgeon recommended to me that any training I could do in a less extreme position, so for example, on a mountain bike, would actually be beneficial and would you know, decrease the likelihood of any kind of recurrence of of the problem. I got a mountain bike for my birthday at the end of July, and that was basically the start of my off-road riding experience. So uh, I had a mountain bike that I rode maybe five or six times August and early September. Uh, Got a gravel bike, I think, the end of the first week of September and then did this race on the 18th. So I'd had the gravel, <laughs> I'd, I'd had the gravel bike about 10 days by the time I did the race. So um, what I know about gravel so far extends to um, fewer than 10 rides, but, uh, but I enjoy it. It's really good fun. The atmosphere at this event that I did in Spain was incredible. It was just, it was just a, a new type of cycling experience for me and something that I really enjoyed. So I think the world championship course is going to be very different to the race I did in Spain. So the one I did in Spain was 160 kilometers, so 100 miles, and it had just over 2000 meters of elevation gain, whereas the world championship course is 140 kilometers. So it's it's a similar length, but the elevation is minimal, I think. Well, one report says that there's 450 meters of climbing and another report says that there's 700 meters of climbing. <laughs> so somewhere between those two. Right. Um, but I think effectively there are two climbs within the first 20 or 25 kilometers and then the course mostly follows a river. I think it's going to be a lot flatter. Yeah, I read that, that you know, once the climbs are over, it's going to be mostly tactical and you better yeah. be in a good position once at the bottom of the last climb. 
Yeah, that's that's what I kind of get from it. Um, so the women's race is 140 kilometers. The elite men do 196. And then there's an intermediary distance, which is for some of the age group male categories. So the like male 19 to 34, I think, are doing are doing 166, which feels slightly, I mean, like I said, I don't know lots about gravel, but it feels slightly at odds with the kind of normal situation of gravel where everybody just does the same. But obviously, it's, it's just what the UCI have, have chosen to do. Well, that's a good segue to my next question, which is, how is the equity in UCI sanctioned gravel racing? Because, you know, you sort of have this counter of gravel always having been very equitable with everyone starting together, same distance, blah, 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 with the UCI, which does not have the greatest track record. <laughs> yeah, um, I guess, yeah, I was quite surprised when I saw that the courses were different lengths for for the men and the women because yeah obviously from my limited experience uh, of reading about different gravel events and doing the event in Spain it it is kind of the women and the men had different slightly different start times for the event in Spain the men started 15 minutes after us but the length was the same we were on exactly the same course there was just that 15 minute delay so yeah i found it quite surprising that the UCI had obviously chosen to put the courses on different lengths. I almost like the fact that for the world championships, the men and the women are at different times. So actually they're on different days, but that there's enough time separation such that the men's race won't influence the women's race, I guess, because I think for something like a world championships, it, it can be quite difficult if you know somebody's maybe had a problem but then they effectively get back into the race because they've you know joined a group of men or something like that which which i know is kind of the spirit of of gravel racing like you kind of deal with your own problems and things things come up but i think for a world championships it isn't actually nice that you know the women could be competing as a group of women with no kind of external you know things happening but I do wish that the courses were the same length. And actually, I got slightly irked um, because I was I was trying to find out some information about the courses because I think, you know, it's it's a new thing and, and everything's been slightly last minute and, and there's not loads of information or there wasn't a lot of information until very recently. But I was on the Instagram account for the, the event. I don't know whether it was just a bad translation, but they were posting about the, the schedule of events. And they said something like, the women will compete over 140 kilometers on Saturday the 8th of October before the professionals ride over 194 kilometers on the oh Sunday. Goodness. And I was like, <laughs> when you when you say professionals, you, you what you actually mean is elite men rather than elite women, but that's just such a bad like such a bad way of phrasing it and i don't know whether it was a mistranslation or what but uh well it sounds very typical uci to me yeah <laughs> i don't want to say that but it's true no exactly <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're on the movistar gravel team so i'm on the movistar zwift team so the okay. e team which again is something that's relatively new to me so i joined the movistar zwift team in january this year having just been using zwift for for training so this year has been the first year i've done like proper proper zwift racing so i i joined movistar in january this year basically a, a message came through in august i think it was saying that they wanted to put together a gravel project for the end of this season. So basically a kind of collaboration between the World Tour road teams and the E-team. So they wanted um, a couple of members of the E-team to do a few gravel events that Carlos Verona from the Men's World Tour team would also be doing, and it would be a kind of joint project. I kind of replied to the message to say that I was already really interested to do the Rancho race in Spain and that it's something that I had looked at anyway. And so, you know, if if they were happy to support me to go and do it, then I would love to be the person doing that race from the E-team. Yeah, basically I was chosen as, as the member of the Zwift team to go and do the Rancho race. And um, yeah, so I did it kind of as 
as Movistar team. That's cool. Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned the esports. Talk to me about the appeal of that. Yeah, so actually, if you'd asked me two years ago, I would have told you, no, no, Zwift's not for me. I don't need it. I'm happy to just, you know, plod along with my training. And then I, um, I, I swapped coach roughly this time two years ago. And he kind of encouraged me to use Zwift for a bit of training and do a bit more on the indoor trainer. Because I used to do loads on the indoor trainer when I was doing my PhD. And then I, I kind of stopped um, and I, I did all of my rides outside. And so he encouraged me to do a bit more on the indoor trainer. Um, and I kind of reluctantly agreed. And actually, I'm a complete convert. I think Zwift is a brilliant training tool. I think the the races, obviously not, not just the you know racing league races, but just the general training races are really, really good training. It's a really hard training session. It's one of the best kind of race simulation type things you can do outside of a race. Yeah, and I love it. So I started doing more kind of just, you know, community training races through last year. And then um, decided in November that I would try and do the continental qualifiers to earn a, a spot for the world championships. And I had a an esports mechanical during that race, but ended up um, still being selected by GB to, to do the world championships, which was in February this year. Yeah, I kind of had a contact with the Movistar Zwift team. A, a, you know, a road teammate of mine was, was already riding for their Zwift team. And she said, oh, I think Movistar are actually looking for another rider for 2022. So I got in touch and they were like, yeah, we'd love to have you. Yeah, please, please join our, please join the Zwift team. So I um, signed a contract on the 22nd of December last year. So just before Christmas and then did my first uh, Zwift Premier Division race with them in January this year. Cool. So you're on this Movistar E-team. Yeah. I'm assuming that after the Gravel Worlds, you'll take some time off and, and then start training, you know, do off-season training for a, a road season next year. Is that true? Or did the surgery change sort of that plan? No. So what I'll... Uh, so actually, interestingly, the the this season of Zwift Racing, Zwift Premier Division Racing, um, it started for the men last Friday and it starts for the women tomorrow. So I will be doing that race tomorrow. I'll be doing the first one of... of this season of Zwift Premier Division tomorrow night, but then I'll probably I'll miss the second round and then come back for the third round in. Uh, it'll be, I guess, late October, early November. Late October will be round three, so I'll I'll be Zwift racing kind of for the next couple of months as of tomorrow night. And because of the surgery, I, I I obviously I don't really need an off season this year because I've I've not had so much of a season. Um, so effectively, I'll do do the Gravel World Championships, um, and then yeah, kind of chat to my coach, look at what we think's the best thing to do in terms of winter training and and building up towards next year. And obviously, as I said, kind of sitting down and working out exactly what next year holds, and therefore what sort of what sort of training we should be looking at. This break is to encourage you to order all of your books via our bookshop page at hearhersports.com books. Every order helps out local bookshops and also this very podcast. A small portion of your purchase goes directly to us. On our main bookshop page, find recommendations from guests and even books they've written, like Who Let Them In by Joanne Lannan and The Keeper by Kelsey Irvick. Both are great books and great gifts. Find out more and order at hearhersports.com slash books. You can also get there from our main menu at hearhersports.com. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. 
There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix dissecting the the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the checkered flag. Now let's get back to pro cyclist Haley Simmons and our discussion of the Cyclist Alliance Mentorship Program. All right, so I do want to get into the Cyclists Alliance Mentorship Program. Yep, absolutely. You know, let's let's start with just sort of the basic, like tell me more about the program. So the program's been running for quite a few years now and it's undergone a, a couple of changes. But as it exists at the moment, there's a platform that's used called Mentor Jam, which is kind of the overall kind of hosting site but effectively what happens is that um, Roos and Gracie have been in charge of the program this year and they get applications in pretty much over the winter for mentors and mentees and then they go through they match up you know, people who would like to be mentors with or who would like mentoring um, so you normally get um, you know, the mentors are normally the more experienced riders who've been in the peloton for longer. The mentees might be younger people like looking to move up to UCI teams. They pair them up, um, introduce them via email. You get an introductory session through Mentor Jam, you know, running a an overview of the program. And then basically um, you're just encouraged to connect at least once per month, but basically as often as as you kind of need or feel comfortable. And each month there are conversation starters, so ideas of things that would be good to chat about that month if there's nothing else kind of specific that that's coming up. Yeah, and then kind of in addition to that, there are also extra things that are kind of hosted through, through the mentorship program, like different webinars on um, some like personality testing. We've had chats with like brand owners from from different bike brands yeah so just other opportunities that are kind of you know the riders are made aware of through the mentorship program and you've been both a mentee and a mentor right yeah so this is my first year as a mentor but I've also I was a mentee for I think three years in total so I've had a couple of different mentors myself and then this year Gracie actually got in touch with me and asked if I would be a mentor this year because obviously I've been through the program a, a couple of times and I've been in the peloton a bit longer. So so yeah, I was uh, matched up matched up with a younger rider this year as as a mentor. And and what did you get from being a mentee? Like how valuable was that? And and from your perspective, like what was what's the aim of the program? I found it really valuable. Um, women's cycling. Women's cycling has gone through a lot of changes in in the time that I've been in the peloton. You know, there's there's been the introduction of the world tour structure, you know, the introduction of minimum salary at world tour level. Um, there's now more kind of knowledge around contract negotiations and things like that. But when I first started, women's cycling felt like, well, it, it wasn't that professionalized in my opinion. And it felt almost as though like it was difficult to navigate a little bit so particularly when I was first kind of getting into UCI teams and, and trying to navigate the system having somebody who'd been in the peloton quite a few years and could offer advice on on teams and negotiations and what I should be looking for uh, provided in a contract or what I should definitely avoid or be worried about like that was really beneficial um, but then also even even as it's become a bit more professionalized and the support has been there kind of elsewhere it's always been useful to have somebody who understands the pressure of being 
you know, on a UCI team, traveling so much, who's been in the races, experienced the stress and the nerves and the pressure and everything else. Uh, sometimes it's just nice to be able to talk to someone who has had that experience or, or still is having that experience if they're still an active rider and getting their their advice or just or just being able to message them and be like, hey, look, this this race that I'm doing next week is is really important to me. I'm really nervous. I'm I'm unsure of of how it's going to go. And have you done it before? Do you have any advice and, and things like that? It's just nice to be able to talk to someone who fully understands because they've they've been there themselves. What years are you talking about when you first got into you know, like we're, we're doing those negotiations with UCI teams. So my first year uh, as a kind of full-time rider on a UCI team was 2016. So mm-hmm. 16, 17, 18, probably it was still, you know, things was, there, there wasn't like the world tour system in place. And I think there wasn't, I, I don't know whether it was just me obviously being new to it and coming from something completely different. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd done a PhD. I, I was, you know, I never thought at the time that I was going to become a professional athlete and obviously I love it, but it's just, it was totally different to anything that I thought I was going to be doing. And I don't know if that was part of it or whether it was just that, that women's cycling wasn't that evolved at that point. You know, the, the support is definitely more there now, you know, you've got draft contracts that you can look at on the cycling Alliance website to get an idea of what you should expect there's the support of um, agents again through the Cyclist Alliance or elsewhere. You've, you know, there's 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 a lot of help available, but that's definitely a more recent thing. When I first was involved in in UCI teams, it um, it felt much more like I was just kind of using my best judgment with my limited knowledge to work out what was good and what was bad. Do you feel that the program or maybe the development improvement of the Peloton or, you know, all of women's cycling has led to greater, I don't know, camaraderie within the Peloton or, or, you know, I just think back to when I was racing and there was definitely like, you know, you had to fight for your spot because there were so few spots on paying teams. And I just wonder if that sort of has changed because of, as I said, this program or, or just sort of the general vibe in women's cycling? Um, I think it varies. It varies a little bit. I think there's, there's quite a big, um, I feel like there's quite a big gap between the really top teams and a lot of the other teams. So obviously you've got, you know, you've got a big difference between the world tour teams and the continental teams. And it's only the world tour teams that are mandated to pay a salary. So, you know, you step down to the continental teams and riders are, um, you know, some some will get a, a salary, some won't. So therefore, some might have jobs or, or be doing something else to support themselves. So you do have quite a big kind of gap of, of professionalism, I think. And it's not just the salaries, it's also just the the support that the teams provide. So the big world tour teams, especially those who also have equivalent men's teams, you know, they'll have they'll have support for every different facet. They'll have psychological support, medical, anything that the, the riders might need will be there. Whereas a lot of the continental level riders don't have access to those things. So I think that big gap can still create a little bit of a problem. But otherwise, I think that a lot of the peloton understand, like, you know, they appreciate that as female cyclists, we all go through quite a lot and and, and it's very similar for all of us. And therefore, there is that kind of feeling of camaraderie and, and, you know, a kind of better group mentality, I think, a lot of the time um, within the peloton. That's good to hear. But also there's there's now sort of models in other sports that have gotten together to fight for better equity. So that probably helps too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What still needs to be done to improve the women's peloton? Oh, um, I think there are still problems with, um, well, obviously there are a lot of problems with equality. And I think a lot of the issue is is from the top. So as we were obviously talking about the UCI having different distances for the Gravel World Championships for the men and the women, I think 
a lot of change needs to come from the UCI, really, because you see plenty of races where the men's and the women's prize money is still completely different. And as as organisers for some of these races, if they're told, well, the minimum prize pot has to be this for the men and this for the women, very few are going to be like, well, that's not fair. The women should have equal. Therefore, we'll put more money in because at the end of the day, that's that's less for them, I suppose. You know, organize a lot of organizers and, and not all. So, you know, I'm definitely not saying this is true of everyone, but a lot of organizers would, you know, they'll put in what they're required to and not necessarily anymore. And so you see situations like happened at Paris-Roubaix last October, where, you know, Trek actually put in the extra money to equal the prize pot for Lizzie Dignan, who, who won, so that it was equal with, with the winning man. Because the disparity was, it was something crazy. It was like 13 times the prize pot for the men compared to the women and and trek stood up and said well you know what this isn't fair we're gonna we're gonna equal it but the onus should really be on the uci to mandate that races that are of the same level have the the same kind of prize pot because we don't put in any less effort than the men so why why should you know why why should we not be rewarded equally do you have any hope that that's actually going to happen anytime soon? Um, I would hope so. I think a lot of organisations are realising the value of women's sport and the fact that they need to step up. Actually, the the Belgian group that organises a lot of the big spring classics, um, I think it's the Flanders Classics, they this year changed the start times for the various races. So for some races, the... The men went first and the women went in the afternoon and then the others it swapped over, you know, to, to kind of give equal opportunity in terms of audiences and things like that and, and viewers and spectators. And I think they actually saw that the women's races were were just as popular and, and actually they got a big audience for those events too. So you are seeing more, more organisations realising that they need to kind of support the women's side as well. You've also got the Tour of Britain and the Women's Tour of Britain. They have equal prize pots. So there are organisations around the world that are that are stepping up. It's just, it, it seems to be individual organisations who are making that decision rather than the UCI mandating it. And, and part of me thinks that that's quite a big problem. And, you know, as I mentioned with teams, yes, we have the World Tour structure now. And the number of World Tour teams is increasing each year. And the minimum salary for the World Tour teams is increasing each year. But there's still a a big disparity between the men's and the women's side. And also, there's no minimum salary requirements below World Tour level on the women's side. Uh, Whereas on the men's side, I don't know the exact figures, but there's a salary mandated for men's continental teams. And that isn't in place for the women. And therefore, you do get, in my opinion, a bigger kind of gap between world tour teams and continental teams on the women's side compared to maybe the men's side. We've sort of been talking about all this in an abstract way, but how have you personally been impacted by this lack of equity? You know, maybe in terms of salary or maybe what's offered by the teams you've been on or stuff that you've seen racing or you know travel whatever it might be so for me personally I've well I had a pretty bad situation a a few years ago where I had a contract for a salary and I actually never ended up being paid that salary and actually I was really lucky that I kind of got a bit of support from no (laughs) no it was it was not a good year and yeah I got a bit of support from the cyclist alliance at the time which you know the the fact that I could get access to legal advice from them was was really really useful I still ended up not not getting my salary I've also been unsalaried for the last two years I'm lucky that my husband is prepared to support us and that he's happy for me to continue racing and kind of trying to get to the level where I can be paid again but 
a lot of other riders would have been forced into retirement because, you know, they wouldn't have husbands, families, parents, whatever, prepared to be like, yeah, you know what, you you ride your bike, I'll, you know, earn the money to pay the bills. So it's it's a really hard situation because I don't want to feel as though I've been forced to step away before reaching my potential because I can't afford it. And I'm lucky enough to to not currently be in that situation, but it but it could change. So yeah, that's that's pretty hard. And I think the same is true for a lot of other women. A lot of other people, they either can't afford to stay in the sport or they can't afford to commit 100% to the sport because they have to work in order to support themselves. And therefore, you know, will they be thinking, could I have potentially done better, done more if I'd not had a job and not had to balance training, recovery and work? So it, it impacts a lot of riders, definitely. Do you think it also impacts the growth of the sport in ways that aren't always really obvious? I think so, because I think women's cycling won't become fully professionalized or as professionalized as the men until women, until all of the women, you know, racing in the same events and at the same level are given the opportunity to commit 100% to to their sport. You know, we, we can't be full-time professional athletes if we're not supported to be. And, you know, you, you sometimes think like, how much easier it must be for some of these riders on the world tour teams who have, you know, a salary so that they don't need to worry about where the money's coming from. They've also got full support from their team in all areas. So, you know, they have a medical issue. They can just drop a a message to the team doctor. They need nutrition advice. They can contact the team nutritionist, et cetera, et cetera. Psychological, you know, anything like that the riders will probably have access to on on the biggest teams whereas you go to the you know the level of of like me for example like i i pay for a nutritionist who you know i'm very very happy with my nutritionist but it's it's an expense that i have where i don't have a salary coming in if i need medical advice you know potentially i go to my gp well my gp does not know very much about professional level sport so they may or may not be helpful. Or I could try and go through health insurance um, or I could try and go through British Cycling Federation because luckily I'm part of their road programme so I do have access to asking for advice from them but that's definitely not true of everybody. So it's a real lottery. Yeah, I mean, it's so amazing to me to watch the world teams who do have all that sport. I mean, I'm yeah, it's amazing. But as yeah. you said, not not everybody has that, and it it just it just creates a bit of a a bit more of a kind of disparity in inability as well, which I think is one criticism that came at the women's Tour de France, which I don't think was entirely fair. But um, you know, some people did comment about some of the different levels of the teams uh, because you you know you had the top teams, the World Tour teams, who have all of this support, have the salary, have everything else. And, you know, some of the level of their riding was clearly far, far above some of the continental teams. But then you say, well, you know, the the continental teams, their riders are not all going to be full time. Some of them might actually be having to take holiday from work to race the the Tour de France Femme. Like, you know, it's 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 a crazy difference. Uh, whereas all of the men riding the Tour de France are almost certainly full-time riders who are supported to be that. Well, this is what gets me is because it impacts public perception. You know, I mean, the public perception is there's not enough depth in the women's cycling field. But as you point out, there's very good reasons for that. Yeah. But then it ends up dissing the women riders when the whole story is not really understood. Yeah, that that upset me quite a lot, actually, because I did see some some press stuff come out during the Tour de France Fair Mavic Zwift about the level of some of the riding and should some of the teams really be there and and this, that and the other. And it's like, well, actually, it's it's not the fault of the riders on the team necessarily. And there's always going to be a massive divide when 50% of the women there are literally full-time riders, have all the support they need, can dedicate all of their time and energy to being the best athletes they can be. And the other 50% have to think about 
okay, well, am I studying? Um, am I working? Can I afford to have, you know, physiotherapy and massage this week or speak to my sports psychologist? Or, you know, there's, there's always going to be a huge divide. And I think that focusing on just the the kind of level of the racing with no other kind of wider information about the different situations that, that the riders might be in was was just a little like not not the best way to portray it what was your overall impression of the tour i loved it so i was actually doing because uh, i was recovering from my surgery at the time i was doing a bit of contracting work from home but on the race so i was providing kind of social media stuff on the latour data twitter channel for ntt um so i watched you know the whole thing and and i loved it i thought it was I thought it was a really good way to kind of introduce it or reintroduce it as a race. And obviously I really want to see it grow. I think there are a lot of things that, that can be changed, but as, as a kind of first, you know, new addition. Yeah. I thought it was a really good week of racing. What would you like to see? How do you, how do you want it to grow? I, I would like it to get longer though. Obviously not all in one go. I don't think it needs to jump straight to a three week race, but eventually you know, it would be great if it could could grow to a much longer race. I think the introduction of an individual time trial stage, possibly also a team time trial, you know, and and maybe maybe like more kind of different parkour as well. So maybe a few more like higher mountain stages. Obviously, the, the race needs to be a bit longer to incorporate all of these things. But, um, you know, I think you could make it a longer race, maybe with a rest day in the middle and, and introduce a time trial or a team time trial or both. But given what we just talked about, the difference in abilities between the world tour teams and the continental teams, how is that going to happen in a way that, that makes sense? I mean, it's sort of like, which comes first, I guess. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's almost a bit of a chicken and egg type situation because I think that the reintroduction of a women's tour de france is a very positive thing for women's cycling because i think it will bring new interest to the women's side of the sport you know if you tell people you're a professional cyclist you always get the question oh do you do the tour de france and then you know previously as a woman you've had to be like well no there, there isn't a women's tour de france etc etc so i'm hoping that the reintroduction of this race brings new sponsors new interest a new kind of yeah like a new love for the women's side of the sport which will hopefully then obviously bring more money into the sport in general which could be distributed towards some of the continental teams to help the whole the the sport as a whole to grow and raise some of the continental teams up to the level of the world tour teams and then you know, it becomes a world tour level race where all of the teams competing are on more of an even playing field. You're, you're maybe not going to get a completely even playing field because, you know, you, you look at the men's side of the sport and there's still dis huge disparities in budgets between the top and the bottom of, of, you know, the teams competing in the tour, but certainly nowhere near as, as big as the disparity that you're getting on the women's side. Right. I mean, there's definitely pack fighter in the men's field still. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they'll still be on, you know, the, those, the lowest budget men's teams doing the tour is still going to be on, you know, a lot bigger budget than I would say all of the women's teams. Right. But certainly the majority of them. You mentioned that you were working at the tour. Was that something that was arranged as part of the Cyclist Alliance mentorship program? Yeah. So actually the NTT job during the Women's Tour de France was something that came up via the Cyclist Alliance. And, you know, I knew that I wasn't going to be racing at that time of the year because of my surgery and the rehab. So that's actually how I got involved with it. So it's it's another great thing that the Cyclist Alliance are enabling. They're, you know, they're linking up with different businesses, companies, offering job opportunities, internships and things like that to both current riders and also riders who are thinking about retirement and transitioning away from from life as a professional cyclist. So it, it's something that I never would have known about or thought about without being part of the Cyclist Alliance. So I, I just, everything that the Cyclist Alliance provides, I just think is, is really beneficial to, 
to the sport and to all of the riders within the sport because they're they're offering opportunities that otherwise you know you you wouldn't know about or wouldn't be available i think this is absolutely amazing because i mean as you said you wouldn't have known about it and it never occurred to me and i don't think it occurred to any of the people that i was racing with to have continued in in the field which is so interesting like why wouldn't it have occurred <laughs> i don't know yeah no it's you know they've they've linked up with quite a few different companies who have been giving talks and seminars via the Cyclist Alliance platform. And yeah, they've now got the kind of almost like job advert type section for, you know, temporary positions, part-time positions, like internships. And and it just gives you a different, you know, a different kind of experience within cycling. And it for me, it was something that I could do you know, because I was like at home and, and not racing myself, but I used all my experience as a professional rider who's who's been in the peloton for, you know, six odd years. That really enabled me to kind of hopefully do a good job, you know, during the Tour de France Femme. And it was really nice that I could almost feel involved with the race without actually being in the race. Does this give you sort of a different perspective of the field in general? You know, now that there's possibility of you know, continuing your career once you stop competing rather than sort of, you know, like your professional athletic career being this sort of, I don't know, spaceship that drops down that's dividing, you know, your college career and what happens afterwards. Yeah, it's definitely opened my eyes to like different things that that are available because, you know, I've also been lucky over the last kind of 18 months that I've been doing a bit of commentary work as well in the UK. So I actually did the commentary on the final edition of La Course last year. And then I did the World Championship commentary last September, European Time Trial Championship, and then also Ride London this year. So I've been doing a bit of commentary work. You know, these things, that the commentary work, the work I did with NTT, you know, I certainly never really, you know, imagined myself doing these things and and I'm just really lucky I feel really lucky that the opportunity has been there and it kind of makes me think that when I stop cycling I don't necessarily have to kind of go back and think okay well I did a PhD so now how do I like go back to what I was doing before cycling happened and and what do I do now it's kind of opened my eyes to different possibilities that might be available once I finish racing myself. Well it allows you to take advantage of all these years that you've been racing. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I mean, the Cyclist Alliance just, it offers so many things on on top of like the mentorship program and, and this kind of work experience and job opportunities. They've now got so many different people involved that are providing support to female cyclists. You've got legal advice. You've got contract advice from, from a rider agent. They've got the concussion testing program. So, you know, kind of health and medical type support and so many things that I think are particularly beneficial for the kind of continental level riders who won't have their own agents necessarily or won't have a team doctor. As a female cyclist, it might feel quite difficult to get that kind of support, but actually you pay what is a relatively small membership fee to to the Cyclist Alliance. And if if you're in a tough situation and you, you don't know what to do, there are people that you can reach out to and, and get advice. And then they will pass you on to someone qualified to, to help you. Is everyone in the Peloton a member of Cyclist Alliance? It's a free choice. I actually don't know what percentage of riders are members. I I think quite a lot are, but I definitely don't think it's a it's a kind of hundred percent deal. I think there are quite a few who probably aren't members, but it's something that I like every new team that I'm on, I'm always encouraging my teammates t- to join TCA because I I honestly I I think the membership you pay is just you know a hundred percent what what you get is is worth far more than the membership fee. That's great. Yeah, I've always been a big fan of Iris and and what she's doing. I just think it's amazing as well that like, you know, it was set up by a group of of riders basically who you know, will have gone through several years of of experiencing the kind of lack of support, I guess, that we had as female cyclists and 
And they thought, you know what, we need to kind of do something about this and, and help fellow female riders. And the work that Iris, Gracie, Roos, Carmen Small, she was involved early on. Oh, I don't know if I've forgotten other people, but, you know, the, the, I'm just really grateful to everyone who was involved in kind of setting it up and, and continue to be involved in, in running it and growing it. I think it's great. And like you said, I mean, it was super smart that all the people who started it had been riders, but it was also super smart that they had stopped riding so that they would be, you know, they were the fall guys. You know, they could be the ones that everybody was getting mad at and it didn't have to be the riders who had to step up when they were also sort of having to, you know, be on a team and not irritate their owners and whatnot. Yeah, and I think it's really sad actually in in a lot of aspects of sport that actually a lot of you almost feel as though you can't always speak your mind or give your full opinion on something for fear of like, yeah, for fear of what might happen as a result. And so you often feel as though you have to kind of be quiet and just nod and smile and agree and and not be difficult because otherwise you'll, you'll kind of pay the price. And it, it feels quite special that a group of people were almost like, you know what, we'll, we'll step up, we'll support you. We'll kind of, yeah take take the fall for anything that's maybe going a bit wrong and and it kind of protects the current riders a little bit yeah for sure well before we wrap up you know if you could dream a goal for next year like what would be your dream goal for me personally performance wise yeah i would so obviously this this year's been a bit interrupted with my injury so i would I would really love to be at the World Championships, which is in Glasgow next summer. Oh yeah, do it for the for the time trial because sure. uh, my time trialing is what was really impacted by the injury, my time trial performance, and you know prior to having the problems, I'd won a bronze medal at the Commonwealth Games, won a bronze medal at the European Games, so I'd really like to kind of be back on top, I guess, with with my time trialing. So I'd love to be you know, competitive at the world championships next summer. But also actually I'd like to get more into the gravel scene because it was so much fun. I've had so much fun the last few weeks, you know, working towards, um, you know, the, the well, the Hutchinson Rancho race and then obviously have managed to qualify for worlds. And so I just want to be having fun riding my bike. And if that means kind of exploring some new things and, and, yeah, trying out some new disciplines, then that'll be cool. Well, great. Well, thanks so much for being here. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Sure. That's all for this week. Thank you, Haley Simmons, for being here to get into so many issues in women's cycling. And thank you, Iris Slappendell, for the introductions and all the good work she does at the Cyclist Alliance. And of course, a huge heartfelt thank you to all of our Patreon and Buy Me A Coffee supporters for your continued backing of the show. I'm so grateful to you for taking the time to express your appreciation for the podcast by signing up as a patron or by sending me a virtual coffee. It means a lot because Hear Her Sports is a listener-supported show, and we couldn't do it without you. If you are not a supporter, enjoy listening to the podcast and would like to give back, go to patreon.com slash hearher or to the easy-to-use buymeacoffee.com slash hearher. For links to a whole bunch of stuff Haley and I talked about, including riders, races, and the Cyclist Alliance, visit the show notes page at hearhersports.com. As always, I absolutely love getting notes, messages, and thoughts from listeners. Send me an email to elizabeth at hearhersports.com. Find us on all the socials, including Twitter for the moment, at hearhersports. If social media is not your thing, definitely be sure to sign up for the newsletter at hearhersports.com. It comes out every other week and includes some of my thoughts from the most recent episode, often how I see it connecting to the rest of the episodes and to ongoing issues in women's sports. Until next time, bye-bye. Well, that's it. Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial, a veteran of the paddle tennis world, and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, 
just beginning or have never even heard of paddle or padel, as it's called in North America. This is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with the Pro Tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! Vamos!